0: So you landed in Central Asia for professional and intellectual reasons. But then you got sick. And the very thing you went to study went from being abstract to very real. And when that happened, your work started to take on truly life-saving implications. You defied expectations. But then you've done that your entire life. You're listening to 2233, a podcast of Exchange Stories.
1: There are a lot of monuments where, like, you have to go up a bunch of stairs to, like, get to the statues. And going upstairs is fine for me, but going down, like, I need to hang on to someone. And there were a lot of times that, like, men would want to, like, lift me and carry me down, and I would be like, no, no. I'm not fragile, like, I just need to hold on to someone, like, you don't have to carry me all the way down. Or like the same thing that, like, if I was walking down the street and carrying something heavy, men would always want to take it from me and carry it for me. There's this perception, I guess, a lot of people saw me as breakable. And there are people in the US that see that too. But it, I felt that, like, it was my duty to convince them that, I'm not as fragile as you think, and I'm a human being, which is tough. Cause like my parents also treated me with kid gloves. Like they, I have a twin sister who doesn't have a disability, and then there's me. Between the two of us, my parents definitely treated me with kid gloves, and I think like they just didn't want to see me get hurt. I can understand that as like a parent that you'd do anything to save your kid from pain, but. You know, when you watch everyone treat you like that, what opportunities do you have to grow if people are confining you in a box?
0: This week, smashing through expectations and limitations, thoughts on what democracy means, and how a hospital stay in Central Asia may end up benefiting the world. Join us and a journey from Michigan to the Kyrgyz Republic to look at energy for all. It's 2233. We report what happens in the United States, warts and all.
1: These exchanges shaped who I am. You get to know these people, they're not quite like you. You read about them, they are people very much like ourselves. And oh, that's what we call cultural exchange. Ooh, yes. My name is Alyssa Meyer. I'm originally from Houghton Lake, Michigan. I'm currently an energy industry analyst. I was a 2012-2013 Fulbright Scholar in energy. I was in the capital in Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan. Uh, and I also went on the Critical Language Scholarship Program to Azerbaijan, um, and I was also a Boren Fellow in Kyrgyzstan. <laughs> It's pretty well understood why and how Kyrgyzstan is energy insecure, which means that there's no like dependable, cost-effective, continuous source of energy. And I understood sort of like the political dynamic behind why the energy insecurity exists. And knowing that, I proposed to sort of look at ways that small-scale renewables, such as solar panels on roofs, might eventually, like, help bridge the gaps to shortages. And I realized pretty quickly once I got to the ground and started doing the work that, you know, it was interesting to work with locals who were also interested in small-scale solar, hydro, or geothermal. But it was hard to do a true benefit-cost analysis of how effective this would be in a solution because I didn't have good data about how it impacted people like on a household level to live in energy and security. Like if you interviewed people or if you watched the news, people would tell you like in this city approximately this number of houses lost power or lost heat or whatever it is. But there was really no coverage on like what that meant on the individual level. And I was aware of that sort of on a subconscious level, but it sort of hit me in the face in the middle of my Fulbright grant when I uh, became sick. (laughs) I had gallstones, but I didn't know it. At the time, I just knew that I had very severe abdominal pain, and they went through a range of, like, thinking that Um, It was my ovaries or thinking it was my kidneys, and I just kept getting worse, and so eventually I ended up in the hospital. And while I was in the hospital, I was still sort of reading and going through interviews and thinking about my work. And I started to wonder, you know, what if you're on kidney dialysis? What if you're on a ventilator? What if you're on an operating table and the lights go out? Shortly after I started thinking about all those things, they figured out that I had gallstones and pretty much told us that I had to have surgery immediately. And that day in itself was pretty terrifying in that, you know, when you learn Russian, they teach you general medical terms. So I learned, like, I have strep throat, I have a headache, but, like, no one teaches you the word for gallbladder. The doctors come over and tell us, like, you have stones in this word that i don't know you need surgery immediately and i watched nasiba go like sheet white and i was just like okay what's wrong with me and so then we looked it up in google translate and then i understood okay it's my gold that's happened to people in my family yes it is an emergency The U.S. Embassy was very kind during that time and was able to help coordinate medical leave for me to go back to the U.S. Uh, and have surgery with my mom. And the surgery itself is pretty easy, and I was back on a plane like two weeks later and fine. But I spent a lot of time thinking about like, what if I'd had surgery there? Of what if I hadn't been so lucky? you know, those thoughts never really went away. And I I started poking at those sorts of questions towards the end of my Fulbright. But by that point, it was April, and I was going home and starting grad school in August. And so I sort of sketched out like a plan for what I would need to do if I was going to answer this question. And then I went to grad school. And the more time went on, the more I realized that you know, I really want to go back and collect data on a household level. Um, This question is not going to leave me alone. I want to write my master's thesis on it. There was a lot of pushback. Like A lot of people said, you already have a year of data from your Fulbright. What are you doing? Um, But long story short, I, uh, with the dual masters, I needed three years of coursework and I completed two of them and then went to Borin, went back to Kyrgyzstan uh, to collect household level data and answer uh, this exact question. It's really a realization that I wouldn't have come to if I was just sitting in a library in the U.S., you know, trying to figure out the cost-benefits of using small-scale renewables in Central Asia. It was something that it was a realization that I had to be on the ground to see. And now at FERC, especially amongst the younger crowd, like the work that I've done and the perspective that I have on why energy regulation is important, is really unique. And that's something that I wouldn't have if it weren't for programs like Fulbright. So when I was uh, applying for Borin, uh and getting ready to submit my application, some of the opposition I had in terms of me going back to Kyrgyzstan uh, was from my family. And even when I was on Fulbright and took medical leave and made the decision to go back in two weeks to finish my work, uh, my mom really fought me on it. And I kept saying to her, like, Mom, I could step off a sidewalk and get hit by a bus tomorrow in the U.S. Like, I'm going to go. This work is important. And as I was applying for Boren in the winter of 2014, Um, a story broke internationally about um, a cardiovascular center in the capital of Bishkek where a woman was in open heart surgery on the table and the lights went out. Supposedly they had a backup generator but they couldn't afford the fuel to put in it so they finished the surgery through the light of staff's cell phones and from what I've read the woman is okay uh, and is Alive and well, but I wouldn't say that my parents follow current events the way that I do. But this story went far enough that my mom saw it and was like, what are you doing? And for me, I was like, look, mom, this is why my work is important. And she was like, are you sure that you have to be the one to do this? But yeah, for me, I felt like it had to be me. I have cerebral palsy and a lot of people look at me and look at my limp and think that like people with physical disabilities can't move abroad on their own. And even like in university study abroad offices, the number of times I've heard someone say like are you sure you want to go abroad? Like I don't think you can do it. you can still go abroad and represent your country. And that's not to say that there weren't challenges. In Central Asia, there are a lot of steps in places that there wouldn't be steps in the U.S. Like, uh, to go to an ATM, there's usually like two or three really narrow steps and to get up, I'm fine. But to come down them, I worry about falling and I... um, had to like come to terms with the fact that like if no one's with me to hold on to, I might fall. And uh, thankfully, and I never took a bad fall, but um, it's not to say that people like me can't spend time abroad. Even now, like when I was on the job market, some of the jobs that I looked at had a lot of international travel involved. And a lot of people looked at me and said, like, you can't do that physically. You won't be able, you don't have the stamina for it. And I looked at them and said, like, have you seen my resume? Have you seen how long I've been abroad alone? You know." 10-year-old me, 15-year-old me, may have believed those people who told me I couldn't. Uh, But now, 29-year-old me wants to encourage everyone that can to do it. I had several conversations, like, related to groups going on hikes where people would say to me, well, we didn't invite you because we didn't want you to get hurt and we thought we were protecting you. And I would say, like, you don't get to decide what I'm capable of. Like, I get to decide that. And I need you to understand that, like, if you don't invite me, that's exclusion based on like your perception of what my body can do and I I get it like in that part of the world I encountered a lot of people who basically said that like people with disabilities like mine sometimes don't finish school sometimes don't work full-time not because they can't but because like society isn't really set up in a way to help accommodate them. And I did once see, like walking down the street, someone who I'm sure had cerebral palsy because the the gait is very distinctive if you know what it looks like. And when I saw him, I, I didn't say anything to him. I, I couldn't think of a way to like broach the topic in a polite way. But I thought a lot about the surgeries that I've had and the opportunities I've had medically, you know, a lot of them occurred probably precisely because I was in the U.S. And the, the major surgeries I had when they happened in 1997 were like new procedures. I'm not sure that those kids there, like if I'd been born in Central Asia, that I would have had the same opportunity. My parents were both teachers, and when I was growing up, before I started having surgeries, my balance was really, really bad. And my mom advocated very heavily to put like bars on one of the bathroom stalls so that I could use it by myself and not worry about falling down. And it was possible. like She was a known entity, and they had to comply with ADA. But you know I don't think the same thing would have happened there and I I think a lot about accessibility like not just for me but in terms of like people like me who happen to be born there the other thing is like there are a lot of stereotypes in their culture about what women should or shouldn't be or how they should act and so I also got a lot of reaction to like, your body isn't pretty enough for men, like because you have limp, because you have scars, and you know, those are demons that I've carried around much of my life, but it sort of put me in a position where I had to respond and say like, do you realize how dangerous it is to teach young girls that? Like, I had the opportunity to be that person to say that precisely because I'd come from a different space from America yeah I agree it's forward-thinking here it's not perfect but it's definitely a lot further ahead than a lot of Eurasia the things that I'll never forget is when I was on Fulbright, the Newtown shooting happened. So the news happened, and then we woke up in the morning in Kyrgyzstan, and people sort of knew that elementary school kids had been killed in their classroom. And for whatever reason, uh, I had to go to the U.S. Embassy that day. And the U.S. Embassy is out in the middle of nowhere. So like the easiest way to get there is to get in a taxi. So I called a taxi and I sat down and the driver asked me where it was going and I asked to go to the American embassy. And he went on a tirade about like, is this what democracy means that you kiss your kids and they go off to school and you never see them again? I was so shocked because I knew where he was coming from. Like in their country, coming from Soviet times into independence, more freedom and independence has meant two major revolutions, two presidents being overthrown and a lot of instability. So like I'd seen firsthand why freedom compared to Soviet times might have made him nervous. But, you know, as a political theorist, you go through so many debates like in early classes about the trade-off between liberty and security that you have to give up some liberty to keep yourself safe and all of these things. And in this conversation, you know, those thoughts came to mind and then I realized, like, that's not how to answer, you know, these types of comments. Like, he's not looking for a philosophical debate. Um. And I sort of stopped and, like, just showed him my humanity and told him, like, I agree, it is horrible. Like, I would never wish that upon anyone. The thing I'll never forget is how shocked he was that I was also upset that kids had been killed. I think he expected me to, like, defend the fact that the the shooter had a right to carry a gun. I, I don't know, I wasn't in his head, but uh, I don't think he expected me to be upset about it as well. Um, but I explained to him that, you know, I was a daughter of two teachers and that it made me nervous to think about that, you know, my parents could go to work and not come home. And when I got out of the car uh he wished me well, and I sort of just stopped and realized there are a lot of stereotypes about Americans, but like one of the privileges of being on exchanges like this is that you're forced to sort of confront what people think about your country. And that's not something that everyone is ready for. Sometimes the conversations are really hard. Um, But I, I learned that day that first and foremost, your job is to show them that you're also human, that Americans are also human. Like a lot of the discussions I had then and a lot of the discussions I had after Newtown and the reactions that I got in Kyrgyzstan to that were about the fact that democracy wasn't about like having perfect governance and having laws or situations that your citizens were always 100% happy with, but that it was more about giving citizens an avenue or a process by which to change what they didn't like or, or a way to speak to those representing them. And I think that was something that resonated with a lot of people. I think there's a big misconception, like we advocate for democratic values internationally, because we think democracy is perfect. And for me, it was about explaining to people that, you know, we have avenues to communicate with the government and tell them that we don't agree. And I think that's, the keystone of democracy and democratic values. I lost my father to brain cancer when I was eight, so he's never really seen like this chapter of my life and all my time abroad. But often when I am abroad, I think about him. And there was one instance when I went on a field trip into the mountains uh, with a group of students. We went to a national park, Al Archa, And we sort of cooked lunch out like over a fire, and then we were um, playing cards. And I learned how to play Durak, which is like a Russian game that's called Fools. Um, And then I taught people in Russian how to play poker. And at the time I was thinking about my dad um, because he taught me when I was growing up, I know how to play because of him. And I had a moment that Like, I was explaining the rules in Russian and sort of laughed to myself and thought, like, I wonder if my dad can see this, I wonder what he thinks. At the time, I didn't really think much of it. And then we had like a couple other Americans with us, and one of them pulled me aside and said, like, I'm really impressed that you're able to explain all of that. And I thought to myself, like, okay, my dad is paying attention now.
0: In this episode, Alyssa Meyer shared her stories from her time as a Fulbright researcher in the Kyrgyz Republic. For more about the Fulbright and other ECA exchange programs, check out eca.state.gov. We also encourage you to subscribe to 2233. You can do that wherever you find your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at ecacollaboratory at state.gov. That's E-C-A-C-O-L-L-A-B-O-R-A-T-O-R-Y at state.gov. Special thanks this week to Alyssa for her stories. And her work to make the world a better place. I did the interview and edited this episode. Featured music was The Night is Blue by Red Norvo Sextet, L'Etoile Danse, and Glimpse of Eternity, both by Maidan, and Garden Number One by Yunya Nishimura. Music at the top of each episode is Sebastian by How the Night Came, and the end credit music is Two Pianos by Tagirlius. Until next time.